recent years, many Christians have started to sense that the world is shifting. While culture was once positive towards Christianity, we're now seeing this world that has moved from openness to indifference and now hostility. Many Christians are now finding themselves in a negative world, which begs the question, how do we respond to this idea of the negative world? How do we adapt? How do we avoid negative responses that hold us back from our mission and focus on the kind of responses that make a difference in this broken world? Today on the Good Lion Podcast, I once again sit down with Mike Doyle, founder and lead pastor of Movement Church in New York, to chat about this complex issue. We discuss the need for a deep faith, a renewed sense of Christian vision, identity, and formation, and how reclaiming the monastic principles of early Christians, even in small ways, can make a big difference. Later in the episode, I'll be joined by Brian Higgins to take a look at the debate surrounding Tim Keller's strategy of winsomeness and how properly understanding what we mean when we say winsomeness makes a huge difference in how to understand this conflict and how to decide where you fall. Then it'll be back to talk with Mike Doyle to close out the discussion with a talk about the problems of both sidesism and the need for a resurgence of theological orthodoxy. I really enjoyed these conversations, and because this is episode two of a three-part series on this concept of the negative world, there's going to be even more good conversations to come. We hope this episode helps you think and consider how to walk wisely as a follower of Jesus and to consider the ways that the world might be changing, but also how our mission as Christians never changes. You're listening to The Good Line Podcast. So now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about approaches, how to approach the negative world. And before that, I think it'd be important. I just want to kind of quote some paraphrases from Ren's initial article. I thought he raised some interesting points. Absolutely. He talked about the approach that we've had as Christians in general to both the positive world and the neutral world. So positive world, right? You've got 1950s Christianity. Christianity is very popular. Then the sexual revolution in the 60s happens. And so the approach that many took in the church was culture war, which is sort of like gatekeeping. It's defensive and defensive against the culture. American Christendom is kind of seen as like, this is the kingdom, right? Which that's a whole nother thing we could talk about. You know, America is not the kingdom of God. Britain's not the kingdom of God. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. American Christendom is kind of seen as like, this is the kingdom. This is something to protect. And so culture with its drugs and rock and roll and sexual perversion is kind of seen as this approaching army of orcs, you know, Uh, Lord of the Rings reference there. Right. So the aggressive hostile stance against culture becomes the norm and trying to defend what we have. And then, you know, politically offensive strategy comes into place around the 70s and 80s with the moral majority. So the whole strategy is trying to win political wars to defeat the culture and We've seen that doesn't always go well, and sometimes it creates Christians that are so hostile towards the culture that they see the culture as people to be defeated and not people to be one to the Lord. So then the inverse of that would be the strategy of the the Christians in the neutral world, which is what I grew up in. So that's 90s, 2014. The strategy is cultural engagement, truth in love trying to reason with non-Christians, trying to win them to the Lord through 
dialogue and openness and, and willing to discuss things with nuance. And one critique Ren gives is, you know, at times they would have a strategy of not trying to hit the culture too hard, but try to show them that Christians can be reasonable. So there's the strategy of kindness and winsomeness. Speak loudly on the issues that the world agrees are wrong. Find that common ground. So the world says racism is wrong, so speak loud on racism. But then some of the critique of that is then the things that the culture finds wrong, like abortion, don't speak up as loud on. And so another thing that the neutral strategy uh, would take would be as Christians in the culture, you're trying to find common ground with the culture. So a lot of times you're critiquing the religious right, you know, the extremists. And you're saying, oh, we're not like those Christians. We're we're cool Christians. We're reasonable Christians. So that that's a whole breakdown of the two strategies, the culture war for the positive world. And then the culture war continues into the neutral world. But then you see this side strategy spring up, which is the cultural engagement model. So the things that's being said is that for the negative world, both of those strategies aren't going to work, and we don't actually seem to have a strategy yet. It's been years since 2014, but we're still struggling as a church to even know what the strategy for this moment should be. The negative world where Christians are looked at as dangerous, the culture is very negative towards Christians. What should the strategy be? So, Mike, solve the problem for us. <laughs> Define what the strategy should be. That's why people are listening to this episode. They want to know, what should we do? I think the response to negative world, I think neutral world is gone. And I think that model of, I call it kind of both sidism, where it's like, you can be this or you can be that, and it doesn't really matter. And you can still know Jesus. I think, I think the both sidism doesn't work any longer. And I think that the neutral world is gone. I think we live in negative world. I think Christians are, we're now living in America in which the culture, for the most part, at least the culture that's coming through in the universities, in the media, in the, the important cities, the, the places of, of culture formation. And, you know, like where I live, New York City or San Francisco or Portland or, La, or, Portland or Los Angeles or Boston is that is the culture has kind of actively, probably consciously turned against the Christian faith. And there's a, there's, a, there's a hostility to the Christian faith now. And I think that the church now is facing incredible cultural headwinds. I think that doing ministry going forward is going to be much more challenging. It doesn't mean it's going to be impossible. It's just going to be a lot more challenging. Even simple things like inflation, you know, like you know, you think of like doing ministry in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles. It's so expensive to do ministry in these cities. The possibility that we may never own a building is, is a possibility, but we can't abandon these cities. And so anyways, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different dynamics to it. There's like economic factors to it. There's cultural factors to it. But I think the church in the United States is, is, is going to head into a time where there's like really strong cultural headwinds against us. And then you could say, oh, Michael, you're in New York City. Well, all the New York City is, is New York City is 10 years ahead of the broader culture. Like, I feel like I'm actually, you know, I, I, I'm just, I've stepped through a time machine and I'm, I'm coming from the future to tell you what the future is going to be like. <laughs> and I think there's this radical, deeply secular America that's coming. Hmm. And I think the church is going to have to be prepared for that. And I think the answer to it is, I think I would probably sum it up. I would call it deep church. Hmm. That I think that the way we respond in negative world isn't by becoming 
you know, more angry or more politically aggressive or whatever. I think, yeah, we, we still stay engaged in the political system. I think we still are concerned about the issues. I think, you know, and actually probably Christians should be more involved in their school boards and their local city councils. They should be running for local government. You know, we, we need to re-engage the political system, but knowing ultimately that it's not going to be a political solution that's going to change things, that ultimately yeah. the crisis in America is a spiritual crisis. And, and the way the church, you know, there, there's, so there's my, there's who I, there's who I am politically, there's my political beliefs, and there's who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's how does the church, the church of Jesus Christ respond to negative world? And I actually think the way the church responds to negative world is, is the church becomes even more deeply Christian. Hmm. I would call it, I would call it deep church. Hmm. That actually what it's going to take is Christians are going to have to be much more committed to Jesus Christ than they ever were before. Mm. They're going to have to be, mm. they're going to need a deeper faith, a deeper spirituality, a deeper theology. Mm. You know, I think that. I love that. Most of us on this podcast, we're, we're, you know, we're very privileged. Like we grew up in the Calvary Chapel world. And so we were taught the Bible right. and we know the scriptures and we've, you know, your, your average Calvary Chapel Christian knows the Bible better than, I, I've heard of Calvary Chapel Christians going to seminary and knowing the Bible better than some of their seminary professors. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that's not, you know, and I'm not beating up on anybody, but that's not maybe truer of the broader evangelical world. It tends to be in the broader evangelical world, the theology is pretty thin. Mm. It's pretty light. Yeah. The ecclesiology is thin. The theology is thin. The worship is thin. And I just don't think that that thin Christianity is going to be able to survive what's coming, the world that's coming, the right. America that's coming, the, the headwinds that we're facing, it's just gonna get steamrolled. Something that you said, you were talking about the importance of a deep theological faith. I think that is mm -hmm. so important because what I do see so many people doing is they have a very shallow surface level faith. And so what you can do through that is you can know a basic concept like God is love. But then what you do is if you don't go deeper, you can just import all of the values of the culture onto that belief and say, God is love. Therefore, you should support everything the culture supports. And if you don't, you're not loving. And then that's not very Christian of you. And for those of us who know theology and we've studied, we're like, well, hold on. Like, we actually believe that because God is love, he wants to protect us all from sin. And so we need to know what sin is, you know, or else we're not being loving. So it's just, it, it's, it's the importance of you need both truth and love, I think. Or, or even going back to, you know, you were talking about, you know, there's all these deconstruction narrative now, and there's kind of these testimonies of like, you know, the new testimonies now are deconstruction narratives. And when I listen to some of them and I read some of them, honestly, a lot of their questions or issues with Christianity could actually probably could have pretty easily been solved with just a little bit of good discipleship yeah. or a little bit of understanding of systematic theology. Yeah. And and so what ends up happening is like I was talking to some, of the, some, some young guys today about, you know, how so many millennials and so many Gen Z are leaving the church. Mm. And I think actually what a lot of them are leaving, I don't think they're leaving Christianity. They're leaving a particular cultural expression of the Christian yeah. faith. And I think that maybe it's a rejection 
of a certain type of Christianity or a certain expression of Christianity that 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 just doesn't do it for them anymore. And and they're and but they're they're saying that that particular way of doing church or that particular expression of Christianity is so unappealing yeah. to them on so many levels, aesthetically, intellectually, emotionally, that they're actually not. I don't think they're actually rejecting the gospel or Jesus Christ. They're rejecting that particular expression of the Christian. They're faith rejecting fun- fundamentalism. Usually, it's it's yeah. an expression of, of it's a negative manifest manifestation of fundamentalism. Usually, yeah, or or, or it's like you know we or they're rejecting seeker sensitive churches or or they're rejecting yeah. they're rejecting boomer churches <laughs> or, or boomer Christianity because there's a there's a huge generation gap between boomers and millennials. Millennials see the world completely differently than boomers, mm. but there's not they haven't had a lot of churches that I think reflect the millennial value system. Mm. And if they could have a church that was like honored the aspects of their worldview that are correct and show them how the gospel resonated with that, then they would realize that they're not actually rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting, you know, I don't know, a, a, you know, a, a period of American culture or something like that, that, that became, right. you know, hmm. personified in certain churches. But the way we respond to negative world is we actually, we become... Here's the thing too, is like, is Andrew Wilson wrote, I think one of the best books I've read in the last four or five years, it was called Spirit and Sacrament. Mm. And in Spirit and Sacrament, he makes this point about how we have 2000 years of Christian history and that's all ours. And we can data mine those last 2000, there's so much richness in the Christian faith Mm. and the church has been through tough times before. And we have, we have the resources, you know, theologically, historically to know how to, you know, weather the difficult Mm. times. And I think, and and I, and I think, you know, um, your average Christian today is going to need much deeper spiritual roots. They're going to have, they're going to need, they're going to need to have a faith that's much more grounded in the historic Christian faith. You know, it's like Christianity that didn't begin with the Jesus movement and, you know, in the early 1960s, it's been around for 2000 years. It, it, it is a robust, unbelievably deep faith that goes back thousands of years and some of the greatest minds the world has ever produced were, were Christian minds. You know, St. Augustine's my hero and I I, mm. I I love him. And But Christians are going to need to have a deeper spirituality. Mm. One of the things the reformers believed was they believed that that every Christian should be as spiritual as a monk. Mm. That you don't, you don't make this distinction between the clergy and the laity or, or what they would do in the Middle Ages. If you had a young guy who was super fired up and really wanted to serve Jesus, they'd stick him off in a monastery yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Which <laughs> seems like, to us you know, in, in, you know, evangelical kind of business driven, numbers driven culture where it's all about maximizing the profits for the kingdom. It, to send somebody who's fired up for the Lord to a monastery would seem to many boomer pastors to be like a waste of that person's potential. Why are you sending them to a monastery where we can't have them lead worship or preach? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But what I'm saying is like, is like the idea of the reformers was like, if you think of like Luther and Calvin, their idea was that they believed that every Christian, every, your average everyday run of the mill Christian should be, should have the spirituality yes. of a monk. That yes. every Christian should have this deep spirituality. I fully agree with that. Yes. And I think it's almost like what you, you know, well, you know, they, they used to call the Puritans, they called them worldly ascetics. But they, they wanted to be as deeply Christian as you possibly could be, but in the yes. world. Without cloistering yourself away and isolating yourself away in, in a monastery, you were to be in the world, you were to be a part of the world, but you were to be completely surrendered to Jesus Christ in the midst yes. of the world. So I think one, you know, one response to the negative world is, is the Benedict option by Rod Dreher, which I actually 
I really agree with. In a sense, it's almost like churches need to be like new monasteries, mm. you know, where churches are these are these outposts of of order and structure and deep spirituality. And I think that, you know, the care, you know, having a background in the Carrie Chapel movement, we believe in the charismatic. We believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think I think the Carrie Chapel world needs to re-engage charismatic theology. Mm. And we need to have much deeper, we, we need to, we need to get back to all that yeah. again. We need to get back to operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the supernatural side of Christianity, part of secularism. It's, it's a disenchanted world. And the way you re-enchant the world is through mm. the Holy Spirit. Right. We need to be, have much deeper theology. I think your average Christian should be learning the, apo- yeah. that's what we're doing in movement. I, I, just, I just got done going through the Apostles' Creed. Love it. Yeah. And I think that you mean to, for, you know, your average Christian, we need to be having like, like theology classes for yes. them. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm and, teaching and, one on Memorial Day on the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm so stoked that, that this Calvary is letting me yes. come do it. Yes. And, 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 and it can be done. You know, you can do it where it's, it's fascinating. It's engaging. But the average Christian today needs to have a deeply robust yes. faith. I, they need to have yeah. a deep spirituality a deep theology, a deep understanding of the scriptures. They need to be deeply rooted in the historic creedal Christian faith. They need to understand the Nicene Creed. They need to have the Apostles' Creed memorized. They need to have a good sweep of church history. Mm. They need to realize they're part of this thing that's 2,000 years old. Mm. And so, yeah, I I want to let you interact, but that's (laughs) that's how we respond in a negative world with deep church. I, I think I love the approach. Like, (laughs) I love it so much more than the culture war approach. And Aaron, let me say this too, is like, look, keep Christianity weird. Yes. I say that all the time. Keep Christianity. We're freaks. Keep Christianity weird. Embrace the freakiness. No, but here's the thing. The weirdness of it is attractive. Yes. You know, like we don't believe in God, we believe in the Trinity. Right. You know, <laughs> we believe in we believe in this strange three-in-one God. Yeah. We you know what that's actually kind of cool and weird and interesting. Yes. And then you step into a Christian gathering, and if and if there's an openness to the Holy Spirit, you feel the manifest presence of God when you step into this gathering. Oh yeah. And you see and you see these people that are like that are oddly like loving and like weirdly kind yes. and like weirdly accepting of one another. And there's something strange about yes. it. Yes. But the strange, the strangeness is what makes it attractive. Yes. People don't want pe- people don't want more of the world. They're sick of the world. The world is not working. The world is broken. Mm. People are depressed. That mm. they're 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 despondent. Last year, a hundred thousand people died from drug overdose deaths in the United States. Mm. We have a suicide epidemic. Mm. We have an opioid epidemic. The world is broken. Everybody knows it's broken. Yes. Amen. People are looking for an alternative, something different. And I think that the church, instead of trying to be exactly like the yes. world, I don't think the world wants more of the world. Yes. They want something different. And I think mm. the strangeness of Christianity, the, 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 the weirdness of it is actually, it's unique. It, it's, uh, it distinguishes us at least, you know, that like, oh, there's something different about that crew. There's. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, like even when it comes to church planting, like a good question you ask people is like, so you're going to plant churches like, well, how do you differentiate yourself? You know, what's going to make you different? You have to, you know, that's an important thing is differentiation. Right. Or if it's like, 
you know, if you're going to open another coffee shop, well, what's going to, why not just go to Starbucks or go to a third wave coffee shop? Why go right. to your shop? What's, what's going to differentiate Fully. you? Yeah. And, and there's, there's those things that they're, they're, they're intrinsically differential about Christianity. I, I want to touch back on you, you were talking about just the need to that return to a deep faith. I think that's so important, Mike. You're you're hitting the nail on the head because in the evangelical church, we are very good at training young Christians on how to feel like they are thriving when they're coming to church, when they're involved in programs, when they're in a youth group and we've got the lights and the smoke machines and the killer worship band. But often what you find is when people move states or go to college and now they're outside of that bubble, they really struggle with their faith. And I'm, I'm actually preaching this Friday to a group of young adults on the concept of apathy. And that's actually Brian Higgins and I, my co-host on this show, we're going to be actually putting together an entire little mini series on the subject of Christian apathy, because we think it is such a disease that is hurting young people in the church. Sort of this, you know, I'm saved and thank you, God. And now I'm just going to live my life and, and no connection to that deep rootedness of the Christian faith. So one thing I'm planning on saying to them this Friday is two things. I want young Christians to be so in tune with Christ that if they somehow got shipwrecked on a deserted island and they had no Bible and no church and just nobody, it was just them and God, they could still have a thriving spiritual life and expression of Christianity on that deserted island. And the other thing I want to say to them is every young Christian should be asking themselves, if something happened and all of the Christians on in the entire world got wiped out except me and my group of friends, would the faith continue on or would it die with us? And those are questions I think we have to ask. Yeah. Well, in terms of apathy, it's like you can't you you're, you can't stand still. You can't. There's no neutral ground like you're, there's entropy. There's there's the laws of thermodynamics. You're either like you're either growing or you're dying. Mm -hmm. And you don't say that like in a compulsive, unhealthy sense. A.W. Tozer's rut, rot or revival. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just no neutral position. You're either. And, and, and I think that the biblical model is like it's a Christian walk. You know, it's step by step. You know what I mean? But but we're going somewhere. We're moving somewhere. We're heading for glory. We're heading for eternity. And then you look at, say, you look at Paul's epistles. He says, you know, run the race with endurance, cast off everything. It's a race. It's a race. We're going somewhere. There's no, there's no neutral position where you can just sit there and be, because the culture around us is, is rapidly changing. We're, we're living through, I, I think it's probably the most, the most dramatic time in human history instead of radical cultural change. And it's not a time for Christians to be sitting on the sidelines and being apathetic and not doing anything. We need to, we need to be deeply engaged. Mm, amen. Unbelievably engaged. But if you look at like, like one of the, th one of the, th one of the trends that I think right now is actually a really amazing trend is like the prayer movements. Mm. And so, if, so if you look at like upper room in Dallas where they, you know, they, they, they pray, you know, it's like seven days a week and they pray like 14 hours a day, you know, and now you're seeing 24 seven prayer movements. Mm. See, I think that is absolutely brilliant because what that is, is that that's, that's Christians. It's, there's nothing revolutionary about that. It's just praying, but it's saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be all in on Jesus. Mm. We're going to pray like we've never prayed mm. before. Yeah. 
We're going we're gonna to worship like we've never prayed before. We're, we're going to evangelize like, like we've never evangelized before. That's the response. The response to negative world, the response to the hostility of our culture is to get down on our knees and to pray like we've never prayed before. Like one of the things I want to do at our church in the fall is I want to do a week of 24-7 prayer. And I want to rent like a, I want to rent like, like an Airbnb somewhere in Midtown and I want to create the schedule and we're going to just start praying like we've never prayed before. Wow. And so maybe a lot of this kind of anger and culture war passion, if we could translate some of that into like, you know, like, let's start going after Jesus like we've never gone after him right. before. Let, let, let's take all that frustration and let, let's put it, let's get down on our knees and praying, but, but praying with expectation. Right, because you're, you're, sig- you're signaling to your people by doing that, that prayer actually does something. Yes. And that if we get together and if we pray, like we are expecting things yes. to happen. Because, I mean, just think about how prayer, I, mean, I, I even myself, how I use prayer so often if I'm honest, is somebody says something that's going on in their life and I go, oh, that's so sad. I'll pray for you. And then like half the time, honestly, like I don't even remember to pray for them. And and prayer can just become this throwaway thing where it's just a, a token thing we Christians say, oh, I should pray about that. I'll pray. But to actually get together with purpose to pray and expect that God's going to do something, that that's leaning into that idea of what you're saying. Christians should lean into their freakiness and weirdness. The culture looks at that and says, why are they getting together in an Airbnb to pray for hours? Like, I don't, you know, and then when things happen, we're able to say, look at what God did. And that inspires people, I think. Yeah. Well, when we pray, God moves mm. and we need revival. We need a third great awakening. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church in the North, North America is is living off the fumes of the Jesus movement. And it, it it's, True. there's very few, it's like, like we're, the gas tank is on E. That's a big conversation in Calvary too, living off the fumes of the Jesus people movement. We need another wave of the Holy Spirit. I believe it has to happen about every 40 years. And we need that next outpouring of the Holy mm. Spirit. And, but there's a lot of people say, oh, we're just waiting for a revival. But you know, we don't just sit back passively and wait for, wait for revival. We actually lean in and we get down on our knees and we start praying and we start asking God for revival and, and pursuing God for revival. And and we just, you know, it's revival happens when the church gets to a point when it's like, all right, enough is enough. Yeah. Enough is enough. Yeah. Like, like we're done. Like, like we want to see God move and we don't want to go through the motions anymore. And we don't want to sit back and watch, you know, our culture collapse on itself. And the way Christians respond, the weapons of our warfare are we get down on our knees, we start praying. We start praying like we've, we've never prayed before. We're praying with expectation, expecting God to move. We ask God for revival. We ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the other thing is, is you know, we have a moral crisis in America. And one of the side effects of revival, every time you have a revival, you have a spiritual awakening and you have a moral awakening as hmm. well. It was the side effects of the evangelical revivals in 19th century England that led to the abolition of slavery. Hmm. It was... It was God was moving in, in the UK. William Wilberforce's heart was touched by the evangelical revival happening in the, in the UK in, in, in the 1800s. And he was so moved by his Christian faith that he agitated in, in the parliament for the abolition of slavery. And you had a moral revolution that was a side effect of, of a spiritual revolution, of a spiritual awakening. And so we can look at these deep moral problems. We can look at these deep problems that the country's facing. And the ultimate solution is, is a spiritual solution. And that's going to happen when the church says, all right, enough is enough. We are going to start going after God like we've never gone after before. We're going to start praying like we've never prayed before. We're going to worship like we've never worshiped before. We're going to start reaching out to our neighbors. We're going to start sharing the gospel. And that's how the church responds. We, we fight back in love and we fight back in prayer and we fight back by, by leaning deeply into our faith and being deeply, deeply Christian. Mm. That's how we respond. And every time the church has done that, it's changed the culture. Mm. It, it, it's transformed the culture. Every time it's done that. Mm. So. Amen. Game over.
Man, I just love what Mike is getting at there. I mean, it's so easy to think that the solution is more political power or the overthrowing of our enemies by force. But we know that is not the way of Jesus. Mike is reminding us of what scripture says. We overcome evil, not with more evil, but with good. By committing ourselves more fully to Jesus, not to religion for religion's sake, not empty church attendance or rule following for the sake of rule following. No, when we commit ourselves to deeper discipleship, deeper commitment to Christ, deeper appreciation for his love, deeper absorption into his worldview and ideology and mission, the world will change. It starts with us. We aren't the first Christians in history to face social change, and we won't be the last. The solution is elegant in its simplicity. We must intentionally become more like Jesus. Now I'm going to sit down with my beloved co-host Brian Higgins as we discuss some of the debate around Tim Keller and the strategy of winsomeness. And look, I want to note the goal of this segment is neither to pick on Keller or defend him. We have massive respect for the guy. Most of the time we agree with him. Sometimes occasionally we don't. That's pretty normal for how we approach most theologians and probably how many of you listeners even approach me and Brian. <laughs> I'm sure we've said things that you don't agree with either. Now, for those of you who are more well-versed in this conversation, you know that we are barely scratching the surface of the debate. If you want to really dive down this rabbit hole, just Google Tim Keller negative world winsomeness and you'll find tons of think pieces to read. What we really want to focus on in this segment is the debate around the idea of winsomeness. Because honestly, it's a value at this show that we have held dear, but we want to understand why the approach of winsomeness is getting criticized and wrestle through the implications of what it means for those of us who are a part of this ministry here at Good Lion and the people that we help disciple. After this, I'll be joined again by Mike Doyle, so stick around for that. But for now, here's my conversation with Brian. This, this brings me to like this, this conversation that's kind of spinning around in the circles of Christianity right now about Tim Keller, because Tim Keller is under a lot of heat right now. Are you, are you familiar with any of the criticisms that he's getting? I am not. I am familiar okay. with Tim Keller, but I don't really know what people are saying about him. So Tim, Tim Keller is being really heavily criticized right now for being basically the poster child for the method of reaction that the neutral world uses. Remember, that was what we grew up in mm -hmm. late 80s, early 90s to 2014 is what Aaron Wren says in his article. And the method is cultural engagement, not culture war, but culture engagement. So that's like, let's have a conversation with the secularists. Let's not push them away. Let's be open to having a dialogue with them and let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let's engage with their ideas on their level. And so that, that that's kind of, I don't know about you, but like, just honestly, that's my bent. And maybe it's because I grew up in that neutral world. But would you feel the same way? Like I, I feel, and it's been kind of a DNA thing of this show is we'll do a whole series on, you know, postmodernism and why you shouldn't follow in its practices. We will do a whole mini series on sexuality or righteousness but we're not posturing ourselves as everyone who disagrees with this is an idiot and I hate them and I want to fight them and destroy them and shut them down. Our approach has been, for lack of a better word, it, it's, it's been this attempt to be winsome, which is actually part of the debate. People are actually saying on Christian Twitter right now, 
that we should not as Christians try to be winsome and that Keller's approach of winsomeness is actually the wrong approach for this moment. It worked in the past, but now in this negative world, we need to move beyond winsomeness is, is kind of what people are saying at the moment. I guess I would look at that. First of all, I hate how much we've used the phrase Christian Twitter. It feels like an oxymoron to me. I hate it. It's one of my least favorite places to be. I thought Christian my... Facebook was hell, but Christian Twitter <laughs> is a whole new level. I hear you. I, I guess what I am so confused about is what should it be replaced with of like, we have spent too long being winsome. Now we want to push people away. Like I, I don't get what the, what the criticism is. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I like to do. I hate when people make assumptions about me. This is actually something that's happened regarding the concept of winsomeness, right? I've had people say to me because of one thing I posted out of context of all of the rest of my theological work, you know, just one post that's about God's love. I've had people say to me, Aaron, you're too loving. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is law and justice and love. Like, and it, you know, you know what I mean? Like just taking one mm -hmm. paragraph of something I wrote or, and, and, and because there's no mention of God's wrath in that one post, thinking that I don't mention it at all when you and I have done hour long episodes about the concept on this show. So what, what I hate is when people misjudge me. And so what I try to not do is to misjudge other people. So there was a guy on Twitter who was a pastor that was in kind of the anti winsome crowd and just really critiquing Keller a lot, really just kind of joking and kind of, kind of mocking, you know, Christians that try to be winsome. And instead of just reading his tweets and being, I don't like this guy. Uh, I don't like what he's saying. I was like, I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to find him. He's a pastor. I'll reach out to him. Let's have a conversation. And so we actually talked for about an hour back and forth and found that we had a lot more common ground than we thought. He was very open to chatting with me. He was very respectful. And I kind of just picked at him that question that you asked is like, what's, what's the alternative? And what he was saying to me in that conversation was basically what he sees in his circles, which I think is it's different than our circles. We're, we, we all operate within the context of like we're reacting to the circles that we grew up in. So we grew up in Calvary Chapel culture. So we're reacting to a lot of that. In the circles he grew up in, he's been seeing what he calls like this leftward drift within Christianity. And so within churches, there's like this, it's, it kind of starts with like, Take homosexuality, for instance, like th this idea of, yeah, that's sin, but isn't all sexual sin, which is something that you and I have said, like on the show, we mm -hmm. brought out that sexual sin is sexual sin. And we feel that sometimes our tribe of kind of this conservative Christianity focused so much on homosexuality that it made them feel like they were the worst of the worst. And then everybody else sinning sexually, you know, straight kids sleeping around got a free pass, which is not healthy. But in his camp, like what he was seeing is like, it's starting with that and then drifting towards people saying actually homosexuality isn't a sin and it's not a big deal. And he gave lots of examples like that. And so I started to kind of see from his perspective where he was coming from. And so his alternative was, why are we trying so hard to appease the culture? Why are we trying so hard to be buddy, buddy with the culture and not offend the culture? We need to just be willing to say harsh truths and not care about who the heck it offends. And that's where him and I got into some differences in our approach, because what I said to him was basically, 
I get what you're saying, and I affirm and agree that we need to stand on truth, even if it makes people uncomfortable as pastors, as leaders. But if all you're doing is just reaffirming what your congregation already believes, anybody who walks through your doors who's struggling with those sins is going to be pushed away because they're going to feel this is a place where everybody has it together and they don't like people like me and they talk harshly about people like me. And so therefore, how can I find forgiveness or redemption here when everybody is already seeing me as their enemy? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And I I don't know this pastor. I haven't read his work. I didn't have that conversation with him. I'm confident he loves Jesus. I'm confident he's doing things under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm I'm not trying to pick fights with anybody. It'd, It'd be weird to pick a fight about how we should try to be more winsome. So I'm not going to get into that kind of mental pretzel. I do find it interesting that there is a divide being made between standing solidly on a truth mm, yeah. and the tone with which that truth is delivered. Yeah. I, I think those are two very different things. Because I, I would agree that I think we've talked about it on this show that deconstruction has often happened for Christians because a question became a doubt. Mm, yeah. A doubt became a softened stance. That softened stance led to a new question. That new question grew into a doubt. It led the stance to soften even more, Mm. rinse and repeat until eventually you're wondering whether or not Jesus was even real. You know, I I can understand how that cycle can happen. I don't think the answer to that cycle is making sure we hold truth with a snarl on our face and with our fist clenched. Yeah. I don't think the answer is we now stop engaging with some people and just tell them, here's the truth, take it or leave it, and think that that will be, that perhaps that will be better at helping show Christians where the boundaries are. Hmm. Perhaps that will set harsher guardrails, and so it'll keep people within the pen, so to speak. But if it keeps people within the pen, it may also keep people outside of the pen. Hmm. And I I think that that is a very dangerous place where it's we need to make sure that our people stay our people, because when that becomes the focus, it can also turn into and those who are not our people, they need to be clearly told they're not our people and they need to be made to feel unwelcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about all that is everything you're saying based on the tone of how this pastor was tweeting, that was kind of the vibe I was getting. Like I was assuming that this guy was just pushing people away and pushing people away. And then he shared with me his podcast and I was like, well, I'm a podcaster and a pastor. He, this guy's sharing his podcast with me. I should listen. And as I listened to his episodes, even though there were still some things I would disagree with, it was a much more nuanced conversation and his take was much more nuanced than just his tweets. And I think that's kind of the unfortunate side of social media, especially Twitter is we're trying so hard to condense what we're saying into this pithy short little statement and trying to word it the right way so that it gets likes and it gets seen. And on social media, the most outrageous things get seen more. But when you actually sit down and talk with people, you'll find that their views are much more nuanced. And as I was listening to his podcast, I was seeing a lot of compassion that he has for the lost and a lot of heart he has to reach his community. 
and he wasn't this crazy fundamentalist, you know, and he even said in his podcast that like, you know, he doesn't consider himself like this fundamentalist, but he gets labeled it at times, but he's actually against, you know, some of the more hardline fundamentalist ways of thinking about things. So yeah, it just goes to show you that we're, we're much more complex and we can't be reduced down to our social media posts. That's why lately, honestly, like there's been times where things have happened in the news or in culture. And my first thought is I should post something about this. And then my second thought is, no, I should podcast about this because people are going to get a much more balanced and nuanced view of what I think on something versus, uh, you know, a tweet or an, an Instagram post. Can I jump more into whole the whole battle on the idea of winsomeness, if that's okay? Absolutely. Okay. So get, bear with me. I'm just going to take a moment to kind of set this up because I, I want to go into like what the debate actually is. I'm going to read from a piece by a guy named John Errett. He wrote over at reformation21.org and he was riffing on another piece that a guy named James Wood wrote about how I evolved on Tim Keller at a blog called First Things. And th- like I said, there, there's been this whole war over Tim Keller that you've you've missed and I've just barely scratched the surface of kind of not engaging on either side, but more just kind of sitting on a hill watching the battle. But I'm going to read this piece because I thought it was really thoughtful. The article that he wrote is called Tim Keller and the Two Senses of Winsome. And I think it gets to the heart of what the debate is. So here's what he says. John Errett says, the more I've reflected on it, the more it seems like an important conversation to have, in particular because the word winsome was so frequently used at my undergraduate alma mater that it became a punchline. And I would just interject really quick. That's what I'm seeing on social media. There's an anti-winsome crowd that loves to make fun of pastors like you and I, Brian, who try to be winsome, who try to reach the lost in a way that's kind and caring and compassionate and not like fully believing in judgment and, and wrath, but not making that my first connection with an unsafe person where it's just fire and brimstone. I'm trying to win them, right? That's that's my idea of the winsome. I'm trying to win them to something. So here's what John Eric continues to say. John Eric writes, you know, he's talking about winsomeness being mocked. And then he says, is it possible to better spell out what is meant by this fraught term? The word clearly has to do with winning someone over, but how? And for what? Indeed, the word has at least two different senses, which are worth distinguishing. Enculturation is not the same thing as courtesy. And I think this is really good what he says here. So he's defining the two different terms, the two different definitions of winsomeness. So he starts with enculturation. He says, by enculturation, I mean the sense that Christians today can be respected members of elite secular culture while making a few moral compromises and should aspire to that goal. Hence, winsome here would mean that others are won over such that they accept Christians as peers within the same circle or class. It's that ambition that would, and I, he writes, would increasingly find dangerous under present conditions. And I would actually uh, agree with that. And I can get more into why later, but I'll just, I'll keep reading this. He says, he goes on to talk about courtesy. So he writes, courtesy is something quite different. A disposition willing to see the image of God in others, to extend kindness, even where it is not necessarily reciprocated, and in discourse, to avoid bad faith interpretations of opponents' arguments. And I, I love that he writes that. That's something that one of my mentors taught me, is never define your opponent's argument based on what you think it is, but actually talk to him and find out what it is so that you can actually engage with him instead of just making assumptions about him. He continues to write, It is not in any sense, however, unilateral disarmament. 
when it comes to fighting for truth. And what he means by that is like disarmament is like we just lay down our arms and we don't fight. He goes on, he writes, winsome in this sense means that the other is won over in that their prior negative perception is at least somewhat destabilized or that their understanding of their opponent becomes a little more nuanced. Note that in the former case of uh, enculturation, the governing assumption is that the other is merely curious. In the latter though, right, talking about courtesy, the other is assumed to be somewhat hostile. This is essentially the neutral world, negative world distinction that Aaron Red builds on in his article. Criticism of winsomeness as enculturation should not and need not shade over into criticism of winsomeness as courtesy, although in practice it often does. And then he ends with this. It is beneath the dignity of Christians to suggest that those who don't have bomb-throwing temperaments are automatically moral compromisers. I say amen to all that. I think that's really good. What, what do you think? So there's a lot in there. Let's, let's circle back to the inculturation courtesy distinction just to make sure we've got our terms down. Right. It sounds to me like inculturation is I will be a Christian who fits seamlessly into secular culture. Yeah. And I can do that without giving up what makes me Christian and by simply blending in or blending in maybe the wrong term by simply fitting in. I will then have an opportunity to show people more of Jesus from within the circles that they run in. Yeah. So there's a there's an example of this that I thought of that actually ties directly into heat that Keller is getting because people are they're they're accusing Keller basically of kind of the enculturation model of this. Keller recently on Christian Twitter, which, again, you should just avoid Christian Twitter is is the elephant graveyard in Lion King that you should not go to. Everything the light touches, Simba, belongs to you. But don't go to that shadowy place. Lion Um, King is the real theme of this season. If you haven't caught on. I am going to try to work it into every episode if I can. But anyway, so what Keller did was on Christian Twitter, he praised Stephen Colbert, who's, you know, late show host, comedian. I think he's pretty funny. But yeah, basically he praised Stephen Colbert because Colbert was in an interview with a musician. I can't remember who, but the musician basically brought up Colbert's faith and was like, hey, yeah, Stephen, like, I think it's pretty cool how passionate you are about your faith and, you know, how you're not willing to hide that kind of in in Hollywood. So I think something that your viewers really connect with in your comedy and your hosting skills is how open and honest and authentic you are about the role your faith plays in your life. And I was wondering, does your faith and your comedy ever overlap? (laughs) And does one ever win out? I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. (laughs) But I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I will say this, I will say this. Someone was asking me earlier about what I, and this, is, this relates to faith because my faith is involved with, I'm, I'm a Christian and a Catholic and that's re- re- always connected to the idea of love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people and that death is not defeat. If you can see where I'm getting at there. In the same way, that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it because that laughter keeps you from having fear of it 
And fear is the thing that keeps you from turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. Stephen gave a response and he didn't really get into gospel. He didn't really get into Jesus or the cross or anything, but he, he gave, you know, he, he gave uh, some distinctions about his faith and the beauty of faith. And Keller basically posted that clip and was like, this is a great example of what it looks like to be a Christian in the culture. And people just started piling on Keller because they started to just point out, yeah, Stephen Colbert stands for so many things that for those of us as Christians, like we would say are anti-gospel. You know, Colbert's, you know, a big proponent of abortion, very liberal, very progressive culturally, you know, on all of the cultural issues that society defers when it comes to Christianity. Colbert's pretty in step with all that. So so people started to pile on Keller because they were like, why are you lifting up this guy just because he professes to be a Christian when like it, it just seems like Keller, like what you're doing is you're you're telling us that the goal for Christians to be an example in society is to become successful in the music industry in Hollywood and then like kind of allude to your faith occasionally and then you've you've succeeded. So that that was the critique that people gave of Keller. So that would be the inculturation side. Right. Whereas the courtesy side of things is a general kindness even in the face of unkind people that works to understand opponents of Christianity yeah. while sticking to basic truth, being willing to stand on basic truth, but not necessarily in an outwardly hostile way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that those are good summaries of those definitions. And I think that you and I, I'm, I know you, so I'm just guessing, but I'm sure you'd agree. Enculturation is not our goal with this show or with our ministries. And I wouldn't say that courtesy is our goal, but I would say that courtesy is a feature and something that we strive for. And that's a distinction I would make. I would say courtesy is our tactic. Yeah. Enculturation, I would say, is not our tactic. Right. And I... I can understand why some would look at it and claim it to be too soft a stance. I can understand that. Right. The thing that I'm having a hard time jumping to is the last line that you read from this piece was, it is beneath the dignity of Christians to suggest that those who don't have bomb throwing temperaments are automatically moral compromisers. Hmm. I think that you could pretty safely say people with bomb-throwing temperaments are not using courtesy as their strategy. They're fighting fire with fire. Right. That's the point. That's am the I, point am that I oversimplifying? Uh, no, no, no. And, th and that's the point that he's making in that last line. Like, he, he's defending courtesy. He's saying everyone who's criticizing winsomeness is forgetting. They're thinking about enculturation when they say winsomeness, but there gotcha. is a definition... Okay of courtesy that so many people use when they use that term. And that's like when you and I say we're trying to be winsome, we're talking about courtesy. We're talking about trying to reach lost people where they're at. And it's what we've said over and over again. Truth without love is empty, but also love without truth is empty. You need both things. And that's a part of courtesy in my book is being willing to 
sit down with somebody who's not saved and meet them where they're at and engage with them where they're at. I mean, I've talked about it several times on the show, but I've got non-Christian friends who tell me that like, I'm one of the only Christians they'll talk to because I don't treat them like dirt for not believing the things that I believe, you know? And I don't say that as a pride thing. I just, that, that's what I want to see more of is, is people saying like, I will talk to Christians because they're, even though I know exactly where they stand on these moral issues and I disagree with them. I feel, I feel loved by them. Like I can't explain it, but there's this love that draws me in and wants me to come back to those conversations. Yeah. And I think that those conversations are important to learn how to have because without them, you know, going back to just the overarching term of winsome, the idea is winning people over to Christianity. If we give up that altogether, we've given up evangelism, we've given up outreach, we've given up the method by which the kingdom of God grows. If we do that, we give up the mission of God himself. Well said, Brian. On the next episode, we're going to dive deeper into the problems of mission drift, namely how our mission to make disciples and preach the gospel often gets hijacked by a lot of causes and ideologies and side quests. But for now, we're going to join Mike Doyle again as we dive into the problem of ideological both sidesism and what exactly is meant when we say both sidesism. Mike also hits on something very important, which is how younger Christians, specifically millennials and Gen Z, need to be both carefully and compassionately discipled through their struggles with grappling with the ideologies of a secular world. Like always, he has a ton of great insight, and I'm excited to share it with you. Here's my conversation with Mike. Mike, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I think it's been really helpful. I also think that one of the biggest principles I try to bring to this show is clarity. I think so often those of us in ministry, we can talk in in kind of broad terms and it leaves people wondering like, well, where do I go from there? And when we were talking about, you, you mentioned how in our current cultural moment in the negative world, the solution is not both sidesism. It's not saying you can be this or you can be that. And I wanted to get into the clarity here and say, what, what do you mean when you say that? What is the this or the that? What are we actually talking about? Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can be a political relativist. What does that mean to be a you political know, relativist in your view? I, I think, you know, there, there was an there was an idea there for a while that really you could be Christian and you could really land anywhere on the political spectrum. Mm. And I would call it, and I would call it a kind of political relativism. And actually your politics kind of didn't even really matter. You could be a follower of Jesus and you could land just about anywhere on the political spectrum. And I think that I just don't think that's true anymore. I think what's happened is, is if you think of on the political left, it's really been kind of hijacked by the radical left and radical leftist ideology is so contrary to the gospel. It's so contrary to the Christian worldview and scriptures. And it's consciously so that it's actually, it's an anti-Christian force. Mm. And so I don't think personally, and I don't, I don't think you can be a believer and, and hold to really radical leftist ideology. I don't think radical leftist ideology is politically neutral. Mm. 
I think it's it's consciously anti-Christian. It's consciously anti-biblical. It's 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 a it's a it's a force against the gospel and the Christian faith. Now, I'm not saying that automatically you have to, you know, therefore leap to the other side end of the political spectrum. I'm just saying that that idea that, you know, there was a time there where you could be kind of you could be kind of center left, you know, and but but, you know, the the, the left wing had has has consciously gone this really radical extremist direction. And so I just don't, I just don't think that's, I don't think the both sidism is an option anymore. I don't think you can be a Christian and, and just kind of land anywhere you want on the political spectrum. The thing that I struggle with in that is like, I know people who are theologically conservative and they believe abortion's wrong and they, you know, are fully aligned with me on those principles, but maybe they're like, I, but I have some views on healthcare that are a little bit more pro progressive, or I have some views on the environment that are a little bit more progressive. So are we saying to those people, like, you have to look at the conservative party that's manifested in our country and you have to adopt everything they believe and reject everything the other side believes. Is that what we're talking about? Like, because I feel like that's kind of the approach that Tim Keller takes. And I know he's getting a lot of heat for it in this moment. But I feel like what he tries to do is he tries to say there isn't this binary where you have to be a full, just raging conservative or a raging liberal. As a Christian, you can be nuanced. So are, are we saying that we should try to do away with nuance? These are all the questions that are running through my head. So I'll turn it to you. What, what do you think? Partly what, what, what conservative Christians have to do is I don't think we tell people which political party to belong to. I don't think we tell them how to vote. What we do is we, we it's another form of discipleship where we have to help them understand the deep implications of certain political positions or certain ideological positions. And we help them understand the roots of them. We help them understand how they, how they you know, align or disalign with the word of God. And then we let them make their own political decisions. We don't tell people how to vote. We just say, look, here's the implications of this. Right. And so if you think of like an issue, if you think of like an issue like abortion. Yes. yes. And, you know, the radical left has gotten to a position where they, they believe, you know, you, you, you know, up until the final seconds before a, a baby is born, that, that the life can be terminated. Yeah, I was just having that conversation with someone the other day and that was the position they took. Yeah. Like it's a choice between a woman and her doctor up until the birth. I'm just like, really? Like we're going to go that far that like hours before the birth, <laughs> that's, that's well, crazy you, to me. Well, even if even if you even if you look at like you know the reason why the Roe versus Wade right now is in the news and there's, and there's a possibility the Supreme Court may overturn Roe versus Wade is it because it goes back to a Mississippi abortion law mm. that abant that that um, restricts abortions after 15 weeks because the idea is that after a certain point you know the baby there's actually a viable baby there and even the original understanding of say like Roe versus Wade was it, it came down to a viability issue it's like if it's once the child is viable then you you know you can't abort it any longer now the radical left it's like you should be able to abort it at any time yeah. up up until the final seconds madness and it's just it's just complete madness and there's no way a follower of Jesus Christ can possibly think it's okay in the final moments before the the baby breaches you know and comes out that you can actually murder that baby that is a that's a full on human being and i just do not believe 
that a follower of Jesus Christ can can hold to that position. Now, I'm not saying automatically that you need to go sign up with a particular political party. What I'm saying to you is as a pastor, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I, I, I lay that out for you. And then I say, you, you, you tell me who you should end up voting for. Right. You tell me where you should land. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm going to tell you the issue and I'm going to explain it to you. And then you, you as an individual Christian, when you go into the voting box, you need to, you need to, you need to vote your conscience and you need to vote whoever you feel right. like best represents your Christian value system. And I, I, I just absolutely do not believe that you can, you know, that, that, that's a, that that's a relativistic position and you can ha- be, you can be politically relativistic about yeah, that. And at, I just, I just at the do. very minimum, what we're calling people to is to, to not be intellectually and spiritually lazy about this and to actually think deeply and hard about these issues. Like, like even if you, even if you look at Roe versus Wade, right? Like really all that is about is about the Supreme Court handing that decision back to the states and saying that that needs to be determined by the states. And actually it's putting it back in the democratic process. Yeah. And some so, states might even, it might, it might even be more in favor of people who are fans of abortion in certain states like New York and California. Well, here's the thing is, is the people who tend to, you know, support abortion, like they, they, they're very, you know, they want to, they want to make America a more democratic and they want, they want, they want a stronger sense of democracy. And actually that's putting it back into the, in the democratic process again. Right. It's, it's making it a more democratic issue. You know, you really want the Supreme Court weighing in on as few issues as possible because once the Supreme Court weighs in on something, it 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 remove it, it goes beyond the democratic system for people to be able to determine their own legislation, the rules that govern them. And so that's another one of those things where it's like it's it's easy to like not really understand the issue and take a really radical position on it when if you understand what's what's really at work there, it's uh yeah, so I just don't think you know, the, the culture has gone it's become so radically anti-Christian, so radically hostile to the Christian faith. And I, don't, and, and I don't think it was that way during neutral world. I think there legitimately was a period of time when it wasn't so hostile and you could maybe you could, you could in good faith, you know, you could, you could, there was, there was a range on the political spectrum where you could land. And I just don't think that's possible anymore. Yeah. So this is a challenging topic for me personally. I, I tend to be somebody who I hate to see the ways that I would say that the church has been corrupted by politics on both left and right. And again, like, I don't want to be the both sides guy, the both sidesism guy, but I do see that. And I grew up in a conservative culture. So I saw constantly being put in my face, like evidence of what the left was doing. As I've grown, I've seen compromises and honestly, like morally wrong things on the right. So that there's a conflict there. But I, I think so this is where I go to with the whole abortion thing, because I think that is a huge issue that we need to grapple with. I, I think that on the one hand, you have those who are so strong as to say, like, if you're a Christian, you can't be a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat, you're in practicing sin. You know, and abortion is usually the main thing that they go to. But then there's there's the whole their laundry list of things. I think that it is worth looking at those criticisms. But I also think that it can be uncharitable to say that about our fellow Christians when we might consider that there are very real reasons in their mind where they're at, where they think that voting a certain way is actually more beneficial to help people and that sort of thing. But this this is where I go to in those conversations with people, because for for me, Um, I am not somebody that pledges allegiance to either side of the political spectrum. But what I do say in the abortion conversation to my friends is I say, okay, so you've got the distinction between the left and the right. The right says 
you shouldn't be able to kill babies. And that's kind of the main thing they focus on is just don't kill the babies. That's wrong. That's evil. And then the left is more like, well, actually, people should be able to kill the babies. But what we're going to try to do is we're going to have all these programs and, and, and policies that's going to make it just there's going to be less baby killing happening. We still want people to be able to do it, but we're going to create all these programs that are going to help this situation and help mothers. And to me, on the one hand, here's what I think. It's not either or in my mind. It's both and like stop killing babies. Let's let's all agree as a country we should stop killing babies. And then let's try policies and things to help the situation and make it less likely for women to want abortion because they're being helped in certain things. Like I'm fine with trying both of those things at the same time. But what I say to my friends who lean more left is, guys, you and I, I'm a Christian. You're more on the left. You're a Christian, too. We both actually agree that immigrants and even illegal immigrants are made in God's image and God cares about them uh, and their people and they're worthy of dignity, even if they're illegal. And so imagine that there was a political party that was stating two things. One, they were stating, we're going to create all of these programs and policies that are going to help immigrants and give them a clear path to the country and make it easier for them to come in. And we just, we want to help them. And that was, that was the one thing they said. But then the other thing they said was, we also believe that at any point, if any American thinks an illegal immigrant is an inconvenience to them in any way, they should be able to kill that illegal immigrant. No questions asked. In fact, you can even call the government and they'll come do it for you. And it's like, you're trying to hold both those things in tension. We want to help illegal immigrants, and we also think you should be able to kill them. And it's like, would you be super supportive of that political party? And their answer is always no. And then I'm like, okay, don't we both agree that the unborn is a human, just like that immigrant? Like, why aren't we giving it the same consideration? So my stance is that while I think it's okay for Christians to have more progressive views on things like healthcare or policy... I don't think any Christian should be a champion of the Democratic Party and, and fighting for trying to get people to embrace the Democratic Party because we can't get past the reality that even though they have policies and programs in mind that are supposed to help people, they also think it should be legal to kill a baby in the womb for any reason if they inconvenience you. So I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Am I making sense at all? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but I don't want to go so far as to say you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. I just want to draw very extreme attention to that, that moral compromise. I think we have to talk well, about well, it. Yeah. Well, or, 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 or I also think what you do, what, what I think we do is we, you know, is we treat people like adults, you know what I mean? And we, and what you do is you, is you, I don't, you know, look in my church, we have people across the entire political spectrum, right. you know, and, 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 and we don't as a church, you know, we don't take a we, we don't take a political position like we we lift up Jesus. We're, we're a Christ centered church. We lift up Jesus. We lift up the kingdom of God. But what I try to help Christians do is I try to help them think through each of the issues from a biblical yes. lens. And I'll say and I'll say this is this particular issue. So let's take abortion. Let's take let's talk about it. Let's look at it. Look at it from the scriptures. And then it's almost like I put the ball in their court and I say, now you <laughs> you tell me what's the most Christian response to this particular issue and let that affect your politics. I'm not going to tell you what, how to vote. I'm not going to tell you which political party you should be associated with, but this is, this is this issue. Here's how you understand it. And I do that with young people right. all the time. Like I'll, you know, when young people come to me and they'll say, you know, maybe a young guy in my church comes to me and says, Hey, I, you know, the other night I, I was out and I, I slept with this girl and, and I, you know, and, and they'll come to me and I'll say, I'll say, well, how do you feel? And they'll say, I feel terrible. Hmm. 
I feel horrible. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you, you know, you, you sin against God. And, and, and yeah. I, what I, but what I help them do is I try to help them come to that conclusion for themselves. And I'll try to say, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's a dead end. And yes, the Bible condemns it, but also from your own personal experience, you know that there's guilt associated with that. There's shame associated with yeah. that. It didn't satisfy you. It's, there's a brokenness that comes from it. And and I'll say, do you want that? They say, no, I don't right. want that. I want Jesus. I want a relationship with God. I want the peace of God. And you go, okay, well, then you need to walk in holiness and purity and you need to, you need to be sexually chaste and you need to be building a relationship with the Lord so you can resist temptation so you don't give into these personal things. But you're helping them. It's it's part of the discipleship process. And I think the same thing, same issue comes down to politically. I just think you, you have to like, you know, even, even say when it comes to like LGBTQ or about you know, the gender issues, it's like, that's, that's a discipleship issue where what you do is you sit down with Christians and you basically give them like a, like a biblical theology of sexuality. And you start in Genesis and you go through the whole Bible and you say, this is how gender and sexuality fits within God's story, within the scriptures. And you help them understand sexuality within the broader theology of the Bible and why gender is so important and why does it matter that actually God determines our gender and he, he, he made Adam male and he made Eve female. And, and why is that so important? Is it just an arbitrary thing? Is it God just being oppressive? No, there's, the, it, it, it goes, you know, the, 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 the gospel is woven even into our gender. The gospel is woven even into our sexuality, that it's part of God's whole grand narrative that he's working out in the world and, and our sexuality and our gender are not these arbitrary things. It's part of this whole bigger thing that God is doing. And I think when you help young people understand that, then they see the elegance of it. They see the wisdom of it. They see the beauty of it. And then they, and then they're like, then they understand why Christians for 2000 years have held to certain positions in terms of sexuality and gender and right. all that. And, it, and I think it makes sense to them. And I, and I think that's what we have to do today is I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's this, there's this kind of political relativism or this political neutrality. I think that the culture has become so polarized that, that you, ha you have the kind of the disappearing middle. Right. And, and, again, and, and again, I'm not saying that we have to, everyone's got to go up, sign up tomorrow for a particular political party. I'm just saying like part of what it means to be Christian, you know, it's like public theology. And I think sometimes evangelicals aren't good at public theology. And then maybe in the world that you and I have come from, Aaron, we're not that good at public theology. <laughs> but that's actually something I want to try to get more into in the coming years, especially as a pastor, is helping to help people understand cultural issues in a deep, thoughtful, Christian yeah. way that, that can't be reduced to a tweet, that can't be reduced to, you know, a Snapchat or an Instagram post or TikTok video. And you try to like help people break things down and understand them from a biblical viewpoint. And that's part of what pastors used to do. Pastors used to help people think, think, think through issues. And we just don't do that anymore. Yeah. Look at the Apostle Paul, right? So hmm. Paul is ministering within the pagan Roman world yes. where sexuality was out of control. Paul goes to Corinth and in Corinth, there's, you know, there's, there's the temple up on the hill and every night a thousand temple prostitutes come down and you worship that God by having sex with the temple prostitutes. And, and what does Paul do? How does Paul respond to Roman culture and the paganism of his day? You know, what he does is he, he, he encourages the people in his churches to be deeply, deeply, deeply Christian. Yeah. 
Yes. He, he, infuse, yes. he infuses them with, with this rich theology of sexuality that's grounded in, in creation, that's grounded in the character of God. And, and what he's doing is, is without, without consciously doing it, he's actually deconstructing the broader culture, but he's doing it in constructing a counter Christian theology of sexuality and what it means to be human. And, and I think that's exactly what we do. Yes. You know what I mean? Is we, 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 you know, and, and then, and Paul didn't just say, you know, don't do X. He grounded it in because this is what Jesus Christ has done for us, because this, this is the scriptural pattern. And then therefore here's how we live. You know, it's, it's a classic thing of, you know, it's indicative before, before imperatives. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is the nature of God. This is who God is. This is the nature of reality. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And here's the implications of how a Christian is to live within, within a pagan sexualized culture. This is how the follower of Jesus Christ is to live. And then what ended up happening is, is so then you tell me what are the political implications of yeah. that. Hmm. And what he did is he transformed Western civilization. Right. He transformed Western civilization by changing, you know, the values of, of the followers of Jesus Christ. And, and then that trickled out into the broader culture and it created, you know, modern era. You know, so. I think I still want to push against the disconnect some people feel because like I've spoken to young people and they're, they'll, they'll come to me and they'll say, Aaron, I grew up in Christian conservatism. I still believe abortion's wrong. I still believe all the same stuff you do about sexuality, but like, I also care about the environment and I've been reading the Bible and it says we're supposed to be stewards of the earth, you know? And so I'm looking at you know, the more liberal side of things. And it's like, they seem to care. And when I talk to the conservatives, I, you know, they, they're dispensationalists and they're just like, ah, oh, it's all going to burn. Who cares? You know? Uh, so like those, there's, there's something like that. Is it a disconnect like that? And so young people feel often this divide where it's like, I have to embrace everything on the right or everything on the left. And there's no in between. And I, I think that like where, where I want to make a clear distinction with people is one, going back to the subject of abortion. Okay, let me say this. I'm less concerned with how somebody votes. I do think it's important uh, because elections have consequences and you have to look at each each yeah, election. Absolutely. It can't just be absolutely. a mindset of like, I'm locked into this side or that side for eternity. But I'm much less interested in how somebody votes and I'm much more interested in how is the culture of the, the left or the right influencing this person and how is it leading them away from what the Christian faith is. So when I talk to somebody who tells me like, oh yeah, you know, I've started to get a little bit more progressive in my politics. What I'll talk to them about is, okay, well, how do you feel about sexuality? How do you feel about, you know, the unborn and, and, and life? And if, if they come back to me and they haven't changed on those things, then I'm like, okay, like I can see, you know, they're, they're shifting in some views, but as far as the core things uh, of the faith, they're holding on to it. But then I would say very often when I see a young person start to shift more leftward politically, what ends up happening is they start to shift also theologically to, to, to the, the leftward. And so what I want to call people to is not to be political conservatives or liberals. I'm calling people to be theological conservatives. And when we say yes. either yes. or like both sides... I will totally make as much as I can say like, well, you know, some people, you know, they might care more about healthcare or the environment or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about 
theology. And there's a distinction between a theological conservative who is somebody who is like, I am trying to be committed to the as best I can, a form of theological orthodoxy. I'm looking at the history of the church, the church fathers, everything that came before me. And I'm trying to draw from that and build on that. I'm looking to Jesus as the authority for my life. I'm looking to scripture as the authority that reveals Jesus into my life and shows me like what he said. I believe that the the words of the biblical authors have meaning and we need to to research and study and try our best to learn what that meaning is. Whereas in, in my time, progressive Christianity I've seen has just been such a trap and theological liberalism takes us to this place where it's just, it's, it's moral relativism. It's the biblical authors didn't have any meaning when they wrote things. We get to interpret it by the standards of the culture. That's where the danger is for me. And so when I, when I agree with you that like we shouldn't be, both sides ism promoting people. It, it, I lean more towards, I lean less away from the political stuff because I think there is some nuance there, but I lean more towards like, yeah, let's take a stand as pastors to be like, let, let's, let's uh, let a new resurgence of theological conservatism take place where we're standing on that saying, this is something we're promoting. We don't want you to be wishy-washy on your theology. We, we want you to be firm on it. Yeah, I, I just think it's the thing of like, we don't, I think the both sidism of this like, as an approach, as a methodology where you get up and say, hey, you can be, you know, you can be whatever, you can be here, here, and you can love Jesus. I just don't think that, I just don't think that's a, I just don't think that's a strategy any longer. I think what we get up and we actually, what we advocate is we have it, we advocate deep Christianity. We advocate deep church. And the, and the tricky thing is what you have to do is you have to help people take things on, on a nuanced case by case basis right. where it's like, I totally, I totally care about the environment. I absolutely care about the environment. It's creation care. And you, it's just, you know, it's, it's ironic, like in terms of where I'm at politically, like I'm, I'm very conservative politically and some of the people that I'm actually allied with politically, <laughs> like other aspects of their life are, you know, I wouldn't be allied with at all. You know what I mean? But on certain, on certain issues, you know, they're, they're, they're an ally, you know, when I think of terms of like, like free speech issues, you know, in the first amendment, I, I, there's, I have certain, you know, free speech allies in terms of my political beliefs that, it, you know, it's, it's teaching Christians also to be like, you know, to be a little more sophisticated, to not be so simplistic in terms of like, you know, you just automatically buy into this whole worldview and everything they have to say, they may get some things right, they may get some things wrong, you know what I mean? But you have to have that intellectual sophistication or that intellectual nuance to say, you know, I, you know, I, I care about creation, but I also care about the unborn and I care about free speech and I care about these different issues. You know, I, th I think it, it also comes down to a discipleship thing. And, and part of it is, I think part of the way, not so much Kerry Chapel world, but maybe the broader evangelical world, the way they did ministry over the last 30 years was there was very little discipleship. And no one has sat down with these young people and helped them think all these issues through. You know, no one has helped them. Mm -hmm. And, and I do it all the time. If, if I can just sit down and have an hour with the, with a young person on a particular issue, if I can if I can just have an hour with them over a good cup of coffee, <laughs> I can help unpack it for them, and I can help them show the logic of a particular worldview. But that's it's slow work. It's discipleship. Right. And but if but if there but if that discipleship isn't isn't happening, and you need almost like a you need a worldview discipleship, and then you need like like a spiritual discipleship, and part of the worldview discipleship is helping them. Mm. You know, you know, work out, you know, it's like young people in my church, like, you know, because socialism, 
is very popular now and partly reason why socialism is, is, is appealing to maybe the younger millennials and Gen Z is just because is because, you know, kids are walking out of college now, $100,000 in debt and they can't afford to buy a home and they can't they can't afford to start a family. And they look at the American system and it just seems like it's not going to work for mm. them. And so then they, they find socialism appealing. Mm. But then if you can sit down, you can have a conversation with them about, you know, socialism and capitalism versus free market. You can kind of help them understand the issue. But those, but those are those are discipleship things. Those, those are longer conversations you need to have with people. And, and the church, we have to get back to discipleship and, the, and that kind of whole right. life Christian worldview discipleship. And that's how we respond to negative world. Mm. Negative world is, is a comprehensive counter worldview to Christianity. Right. And so then what we have to do is we have to build people who are strong in the Christian worldview. And Christianity, it's, it's, it's muscular, it's robust, it's rich, it's deep. Every one of these issues has been thought through by someone a hundred times smarter than you, you know, you or I right. are. <laughs> and there's... And they've been wrestling with these issues for thousands of years. And and, and, and all the resources are, are available there to help build strong Christians who can hold their own in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile right. against them. Thanks for listening to the show, man. What a interesting conversation with both Brian and Mike. I think for me, my key takeaways from this episode are, I, I love what Mike Doyle was saying about the need that we have in this moment for just this renewal of a deep faith, this renewed sense of Christian vision, identity formation. I think that's so key. And I think if every pastor listening to this, if every small group leader, youth pastor, college pastor, and really just every Christian listening to this, could understand the value and the need for recapturing what it means to be Christian. It's so easy if you're like me growing up in the church to just assume that everybody knows what it means to be Christian. But the more time I've spent doing ministry, the more I've realized there are people who have been sitting in the church pews for years that don't actually fully understand the gospel and what it means to be a Christ follower. And so we've got to recapture theological orthodoxy We've got to recapture that Christian vision and really get back to basics with people. Also, that conversation Brian and I had on winsomeness, I really appreciated that. And for me, what I'm just sensing in this debate is that there are people on one side where it's easy to look at them if you're like me and call them a Pharisee because they're concerned that some Christians are being too loving and not showing enough focus to sin and judgment. And you know what? There is some truth to that. There are actually, from what I've observed and researched, plenty of churches out there that don't really talk about sin, that don't really teach people about their need for repentance. And so I understand why some pastors think that it is a bad strategy to just try to buddy buddy up to the world and somehow preach the gospel without using words. I get that. I really do. That's why for me, I just want to double down on the principles of truth combined with love. That needs to be our mission. We can't be afraid to speak the truth. We can't be afraid to call sin, sin. But we also need to continue to remember it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And we need to care. We need to care enough to make an effort to try to communicate truth with 
love. It's totally doable. I, I'm seeing so many churches do this. I'm, I'm excited to recognize. Like, it, I've got friends right now who are pastoring church plants, and I'm just, whenever I listen to their sermons, I'm just so, so thankful to hear churches boldly speaking truth, but doing it in a way that is so oriented towards love, towards even the non-believer who might be sitting in the audience. That, that is powerful, and that, I truly believe, will play a huge part in changing the world for the better. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I am excited about the next one coming out. It's the third, and I think, unless we record something additional, but the third and I think final part in this series on the negative world, and the title is going to be Mission Drift, Political Extremes, and Wisdom in the Negative World. I won't say much more about it beyond that. You'll just have to tune in. Thanks for listening. If you like what we do, you can go to our ministry website, goodlion.org, where you can find out more about the ministry Brian and I are doing through this podcast and he and I speaking in different places around the world. And if you want to learn more about our podcast network, you can go to goodlion.io. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. God bless you. God go with you as you try to navigate this changing world fixing your eyes on Jesus, the God who never changes.